This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you for being on the program. We have a very, very good show for you this evening. Laurie Hughes, who is the author of the book Choose Zoe, a pro-life author, she is going to be on the program, and, and we've got her with us coming up in just a minute. Before we do, of course, we always allow local news to take priority. That's just something that we do here at News Radio 1440, and so we are going to be diving into that as well. Got a few other stories uh, that we're going to be covering this evening as well. But first of all, I wanted to do one that is from here in the, the river region. AL.com has a article out that uh, it really does paint Alabama as the worst state to work in the pandemic. And so we're going to dive into this article and give you a little bit of this. Now, I do want to offer a couple of, um, I don't know exactly what the best way to characterize this is, but Essentially, what I wanted to communicate with you here is that even though I, I tend to come down pretty hard on AL.com for their very obvious left-leaning bias, and, and that's done because, I mean, they deserve it. It's done because uh, they have definitely earned that uh, stigma because it, it's accurate. It's one that everybody knows AL.com has a pretty significant left-leaning bend. But I do want to give a disclaimer here to at least give them some... Uh, to give you a better idea, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to go at them harder than is absolutely necessary. I want to be fair to them, even though they do have a left-leaning bend. So, um, to be fair, they did not make this survey, and so AL.com's anti-Alabama rhetoric, anti-conservative rhetoric, the, the the type that they usually spew out, it's still there. But it's much more subtle this way. It's, it's not just one of their commentators or one of their columnists talking about how horrible and backwards and evil and out of date and out of touch the state is, which is their usual shtick. I mean, it's just kind of what you expect from AL.com. They, they don't go full on that way like they usually do. What they do this is they, they let somebody else basically do their dirty work for them. So uh, th there's a group called Axfam America that uh, they are a, you know, a severe leftist organization, but it's mostly just AL.com repeating their talking points as opposed to making them themselves. So this is a little different than the stuff that we're normally used to when it comes to AL.com's radical anti-Alabama messaging that they like to put forward. And, and that's, that tends to be uh, the, the way that they handle it. And this, in this particular article, it's not so much them saying it or one of their contributors saying that it's just parroting those uh, talking points from somebody else. And this is something that's important to understand about media. And I've been in media for some time now, both on the commentary end, which I've been doing for a while, and also the, the hard news end, which AL.com pretends to be on. Uh, with AL.com, uh, there's a lot of different ways that media bias can sort of manifest itself. One of the more subtle, but frankly, probably the most effective way that that takes place is not that they have a whole bunch of people that are obviously far left, like CNN. It's easy to see CNN's left-leaning bias because you've got people like Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo, which are radical leftists, and they have primetime slots at that network. That's a very, very obvious bias. 
But the more subtle bias, which AL.com sort of di- uh, sort of puts on display with this article claiming that Alabama is the worst state to work in for the pandemic it, during the coronavirus outbreak, that Alabama is the worst state in the nation to work in, uh, it's more what they choose to report and choose not to report. So you see how you could very easily craft the narrative or place an idea in somebody's head and reinforce that idea over and over again with decisions made by your news organization of stories that don't fit your narrative, leaving those out, stories that do fit your narrative, or at least somewhat suggest your narrative might be plausible, report on those, even if they're not necessarily newsworthy. And and we see this all the time, and I'll use a non-political, a completely apolitical example here to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. I want to say it was about four or five years ago, one of the big stories of the summer was shark attacks. Then we were having so many shark attacks, the shark attacks were ridiculous, they were, they were out of control, and then you do some digging into it, it turns out actually shark attacks were down that summer. If you look at that summer as a whole, there were less shark attacks than normal. But what happened is it was sensationalized, people were watching it, and so because of that, the media saw something that the viewers would watch, and, and they wound up every single time there was a shark attack, even though they were you know, roughly the same, actually a little bit less common that year than they normally were. They just ran that story every single time, which created a public perception that shark attacks were way up, even though they were actually a little bit below average. This one's slightly political, but it, it's a good metaphor that shows the same thing. We saw exactly the same thing happening with the uh, the forest fires with the Amazon, which took place this year, and, and also the brush fires in Australia, everybody made the case that, oh my gosh, this is, this is global warming, and the world's coming to an end, and everything's burning, and uh, the Amazons are the world's lungs, which is ridiculous. That's never, there's never been any scientific evidence of that. That's just a, a, you know, a hokey catchphrase they like to throw out there. There's no reason to believe that the Amazon process is any more carbon dioxide than any other uh, forest in, in the world. But anyway, that aside... They pushed out this narrative, and it turns out that, no, actually, the forest fires happening in the Amazon are pretty much a normal year. I mean, yes, that story caught fire, pun intended, but turns out, when you look at the data, when you look at what actually was happening, no, forest fires were about normal. And the same thing is true of Australia. In fact, I I believe that they were up a little bit at the beginning of the year, but because they had had more brush burned off at the beginning of the year, they actually had a very mild rest of the year when compared to the amount of fires that they normally have in a year. And so it kind of balanced out because there was less stuff to burn. So if you're looking at the year as a whole, the year to date in 2020, the Australian fires that were going on, I mean, yes, they're a big problem. It's fires. But when you look at it at the end of the year, about the same amount of stuff burned as it did the year before. And so you can see how there it's very easy to sensationalize something or through selective reporting, plant an idea inside the public's mind and push a narrative, even though there might not be any truth to it whatsoever. And this is what we've been seeing with this. So Alabama has done this for years and with this survey that was done by Oxfam America, this leftist organization that, that put out this report saying that Alabama is the worst place in the country, the, the worst state in the union to be if you are a worker with coronavirus, the fact that this you know barely recognizable podunk 
organization that is very far left and had a you know already had a vested interest in making Alabama look bad or other conservative uh, states, other red states look bad. They already had that in there, and that's what the report showed. And AL.com saw it, and they ran with it. And through selecting stories like that, but not selecting stories that may show, you know, for example, that Alabama had a ridiculous level of economic growth over the past years. And I'm not saying AL.com never does that. I'm not saying that they're so far gone that they're MSNBC or CNN News. But the fact that they picked up on this story, despite the fact that it's it's not even close to newsworthy, it's just some liberals wish list of what they think that states ought to do when they ranked all of the states based on that rubric and then it turns out that Alabama is pretty low on the list and in this case dead last which you would expect considering that we're a red state so understanding all of that you understand how that selective reporting works because when we get for example a low economic liberty score Yale.com doesn't report that because that would suggest that we're not, you know, crazy right wing or uber conservative, which, you know, from a financial standpoint, we're really not as conservative as people would have you believe. But when that happens, when out of the, the state rankings, Alabama doesn't get a very high economic liberty score, Yale.com never reports on that because, you know, that doesn't fit their narrative. That doesn't further their interest in crafting this idea in the public that Alabama really isn't as conservative or limited government as we would like to believe ourselves to be. And because that doesn't fit that narrative, that just doesn't get reported. So this is how that selected, that, that picking and choosing of certain news stories can really influence them. So let's go ahead and, and read the actual article here. Uh, headline, AL.com, September 2nd. Alabama rated worst state to work during the COVID-19 pandemic. Alabama is the worst state in the nation to work in during COVID-19 pandemic, according to a survey uh, out that rates the states based on their policies to protect working families. Oxfam America, a nonprofit agency dedicated to ending poverty, used 27 different data points in three areas of state assistance, worker protections, health care protections, and unemployment support. Now, I, I love the way that they depict it. They say the depiction that they give there is, quote, a nonprofit uh, dedicated to ending poverty. That makes them sound a lot more legitimate than they actually are. First of all, if they are really a nonprofit that is dedicated to ending poverty, and I'm not saying that they're not, I'm just saying if that is the case, why would we assume that they're experts on gauging how good workers have it in a state uh, because of the pandemic anyway? Like, why would we assume that they are well-equipped for that? Now, you could see some poll-taking organization or some kind of political think tank maybe doing that, but if they're just a charity, which is the way that they depict them in this, and they're not just a charity, they do some charitable work, and, you know, regardless of where we stand on the political spectrum, we commend them. If there are poor people getting help from this private organization, I applaud that, regardless of what I, whether I agree with their politics or not. However, the irony is, is that this whole thing sets up a catch-22. Because if they really are just a charitable organization that are dedicated to ending poverty, then why the heck are they wasting money on stupid crap like this that's just political? If that's really the case, then A, why would they be doing this in the first place? And B, if they are doing it, why would we assume that a nonprofit organization that's supposed to just be about charity and ending poverty 
would have the level of expertise and experience to put out something like this, and it would be a good rubric, a good measuring stick to go on the results that their survey came out with. There's no reason to believe that to be the case, and that's why this is so incredibly ridiculous. And then on the other hand, this is the other side of that Catch-22. If they're not just a charity organization, if they really are some kind of political think tank or, or people that delve into this on a regular basis, which, by the way, they are, they are a left-leaning organization. See, but Ale.com doesn't want to talk about that because then it taints the objectivity or the, uh, the assumption of ob objectivity they're trying to present here by just calling them a nonprofit that d deals with poverty. That's what they actually are. They are a political force. They, they do engage in politics and they engage in, in policy. And I, I assume they do lobbying. I honestly don't know that. You'd have to double check me on that one. Uh, but based on everything that I've seen, it, it would not surprise me at all if they do some lobbying as well, which, you know, they're well within the right to do. I don't have anything against that. It's just it seems very dishonest for AL.com to leave all that stuff out and make it sound as though this is just some objective uh, some kind of objective organization. For example, when, when, if they were to do a report on, say, Heritage Foundation or uh, FreedomWorks or, or one of those other organizations that tends to lean right, I'm fine with them saying they're a right-leaning organization. They are. That's where their ideological core lies, and that's fine with reporting that if you're going to say that, oh, FreedomWorks came up with a rubric of how free the states are and Alabama came in such and such, okay, that's fine. By all means, bring up the fact that if you're going to talk about that story, that FreedomWorks has an ideological bend, which they do. It's no surprise that they left that part out of the story. That's how that selective picking and choosing of details can cause somebody to get the wrong idea here. So this article continues on. Alabama ranked 52nd, dead last, in a survey that included the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. It also ranked last in unemployment services, 49th in health care, and 48th in worker protections. The pandemic has... Ex Sorry, this is a quote. I should have led with that. This is a quote. The pandemic has exacerbated uh, challenges facing low-wage working families in the U.S., but it did not create them. Minor Sinclair, Oxfam America's U.S. Domestic Program Director, holy cow, that's uh, got to be hard to fit on a business card, said, quote, instead it has revealed the ugly reality of deep structural problems for millions of working families who risk falling into poverty, hunger, and homelessness. Okay, so he got basically every progressive buzzword in there. First of all, you see that uh, low-wage working families, um, then it goes into, uh, it revealed a uh, reality of deep structural problems for millions of working families and all this stuff. Here's the thing. And I'm not trying to make light of people that don't have a lot. I mean, as a Christian, that's something that's very near and dear to my heart. I give money to charities. I want to help those people. I've helped those people myself, not just with my money, but with time, volunteer work. That's something that is important to me. But being less fortunate in America means you're rich everywhere else. And they constantly put this narrative out there that being impoverished in America means that you have an incredibly difficult life, which there's rich people that have an incredibly difficult life. Your economic status doesn't necessarily mean that you will have an easy life. But that aside for a second, if you are a poor person in America then you're already better off than like 95% of the world's population. 
If you own a car, you are automatically, without question, in the top 4% economically of the entire human population. And there's a lot of poor people that have cars. Doesn't mean that they don't have a lot of difficulty. Doesn't mean that, for example, a person that is homeless and, and the only thing they have is their car doesn't, have, doesn't need a lot of help. And I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that at all. But I'm saying that they are constantly trying to make it out, and I see this stuff all the time, that there are just these, these throngs and throngs of deeply impoverished people in the United States of America, and frankly, it's just not true. There are poor people in America. There are certainly less poor people in America. There are certainly less fortunate people in America that do need our help. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. But, I mean, Jesus Christ himself said that the poor you will have with you always. And so we're always going to have poverty, which, by the way, just a side note, in this organization, that uh, looking at their mission statement, they actually said that poverty can be eliminated. That's part of their mission statement. That ain't true. Uh, but, but nonetheless, Jesus Christ himself said and prophesied that you're always going to have poor people. There are always going to be people that need your help. You're always going to have some people that have more than others, and it's your responsibility as followers of mine to help those people out. I get that. I understand that. But this idea that there is a, you know, that we're some kind of third world country with tons of poverty and that the state of Alabama, you know, yes, the state of Alabama does have its problems. We have a higher rate of poverty than the average state. That is accurate. I don't pretend that that's not the case. However, the idea that these people are like starving to death is simply not true. And so they, they try to paint this sort of gruesome picture, and you saw it all throughout the week of the Democrat convention, for example, that America's basically teetering on the brink of destruction, and we're the only ones that can save it, and that's simply not the case. Um, but here's another thing that you need to be aware of, too, because like I just said, Alabama does have a higher rate of poverty comparatively to other states, but... Is it because of the things that they're talking about? Here's the other thing. They're not connecting the cause and the effect. Because in this report, what they equate to poverty and it being bad for working families, they don't at any point even make an attempt to explain why all of the things in their list make it worse for working families. They don't explain how this is like somehow tied to unemployment rates or a drop in pay, layoffs, furloughs, none of that. They just assume that all of their policy proposals would fix all of the problems and, all, and, and they say that these protections are making it better for families, these aren't. What it doesn't account for is, for example, uh, I'm just going to go over one and we'll go over the whole list here in a second. Uh, one, for example, is uh, protections against getting kicked out of your house. Well, what if the working family that you happen to belong to is a family that runs an apartment building? Well, you may have been financially ruined or at least severely crippled by a state law that protects them. So there's absolutely no effort on the part of the people making this survey to try to connect those two things that these policy proposals that we think are the right thing to do and the effects that they're actually happen. There, there is not even an attempt to connect those two things and to prove that these policies that we're saying that we're judging states by as to how good a job they're doing responding to the coronavirus pandemic is actually helping people. The assumption is just there and they expect you to just buy it and swallow it whole cloth. And so that's one of the biggest problems that I have with this one particular 
survey. Uh, and one thing that you can look at to, because basically this whole thing, the rubric that they're using, the measuring stick by which they are judging the states, it's nothing but a progressive wish list. It's just all the things that the progressives would want a state to do, all of the policies that they would want. And if you do all of them, then you're going to score very high. If you don't, you're going to score very low. Doesn't matter what your employment, uh, your unemployment rate is. Doesn't matter how many people lost their jobs. Doesn't matter how many people kept their jobs. Doesn't matter how many people lost pay, lost property. None of that. The only thing they're measuring by is, did the state implement these leftist policies that we like? And this is something that apparently Yale.com finds newsworthy. To prove my point, listen to the top five states. Washington, New Jersey, California, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. So basically all the bluest states. The only exception is New York's not on there. I would imagine that they're not far behind. The bottom five states, Alabama, Missouri, Georgia, Wyoming, and Mississippi. I mean, <laughs> I think that how the states ranked and where the states ranked, that in and of itself pretty much tells you all that you need to know about how they were measuring this and how they were judging it and that the game is essentially rigged from the onset. But in case you were still wondering about it, in case you were just not sure if that is really the case, I have here the methodology for which they measured this and came up with the rankings that they did that put Alabama's dead last. So I'm just going to read them off and I'm going to rapid fire them because there's a lot of them. So I'll just go through them very quickly. So under worker protections, this is the first category. Underlying workplace protections, 15%. This was 15% of the state's overall score. Mandated sick, paid sick leave, mandated paid family leave, protections against sexual harassment, and pregnancy accommodations. Now, what the heck does pregnancy accommodations have anything to do with the coronavirus? Anybody? Where's my cricket sound effect? What does that have anything to do with this? Like I said, this is nothing but a progressive wish list of things that they want states to do, has nothing to do with the actual response to the coronavirus. And the, the paid sick, sick leave, the paid family leave, that's at least somewhat tangentially connected to it, even though mandating that a company has to do this is not necessarily going to make it better or worse when you're going through the pandemic. Uh, protections against sexual harassment. Again, what the heck does that have to do with this? Do I want protections for sexual harassment? Yeah, absolutely. I've been pretty vocal on this. Still don't think it has a darn thing to do with the coronavirus and how the states are responding to it. And so the, the fact that AL.com felt that this was newsworthy is just laughable. COVID-19 era workplace uh, protections, 15% overall score. Protection against forced return to work. So in other words forcing companies to pay people that are not coming back to work. This is something that other states have done and scored better on Alabama than this. Thankfully, we have, you know, a brain in our heads still in the state of Alabama and didn't do this, forcing a company to pay a person to not work. That's absolutely insane. Uh, or another policy that uh, falls within this category that other states did, you can't lose your job for not showing up to work. Wait, so they can't fire you for not coming to work? I mean, I think that that's literally the most basic thing that you can get fired for is not showing up to do your job. But th this is what they're judging it based on. Protections against retaliation. Again, the same thing that I was talking about. So if you say, hey, you got to come to work, we're open again. And you say, no, I don't want to. 
and they say you're fired and the state doesn't come in and stop that, then that's what they're talking about here. State-funded child care for essential workers. Again, I have no idea how that factors into uh, coronavirus. State-mandated corporate immunity against COVID-19 cases. Now, this is actually one that uh, was a negative rubric that Alabama does have in place that we're trying to keep people from just suing people over coronavirus. And, and that's one thing that they actually listed specifically about the state of Alabama that they had their panties on a bunch about. All right. Uh, community level protections, 15% overall score, state level loans and grants for small businesses, uh, state personal protective equipment requirements, state defined essential occupants and social protections in public face mask requirements. So like Governor Ivey's mandate probably helped on this particular thing. And when I say helped, I don't mean actually did anything worthwhile. I mean, helped the score on this. And then the, the personal protective equipment requirements. This is stuff like if you're working in your office building with people that you see literally every single day, and even with jobs that you may have to get very close to the person, that the state require that you do this. If you're somebody that works, let's say, 10 feet away from everybody else and you have your own private office, but you're not wearing your mask at work, that would be something that they're talking about here. And so the fact that Alabama doesn't have something like that counted against us. All right, this is the other one, healthcare. Expanded Medicaid access. Okay, I did an entire segment about how expanding Medicaid access has literally nothing to do with how well the state's uh, did on the coronavirus response. I, I looked at the stats, looked at the numbers. In fact, what's interesting is the states that did not expand Medicaid had exactly the same number of, uh, statistically speaking, looking at them as a comparison, that there was zero correlation, none whatsoever, between states that had expanded Medicaid and how well they were doing on things like coronavirus deaths and coronavirus uh, hospitalization, so on and so forth. So had nothing to do with the coronavirus response, had zero effect. The states that have not expanded Medicaid, and I think there's only 11 of them, the states that had not expanded Medicaid, there were just as many of them on the bottom uh, for the states that were doing the best when it came to coronavirus versus the ones that were doing the worst. And so no difference whatsoever. Expanded telehealth services. I don't understand why that's the state's responsibility. Premium payment grace period let's see, a waived cost sharing for COVID-19 treatment. So basically the state paying your medical bills for you. Again, I told you this is, a this is basically just a progressive wish list. And then expanded worker compensation due to COVID-19. Then it goes on transparent case reporting, 5% of overall score, disaggregated COVID-19 data by sex, disaggregated COVID-19 data by race. This is basically just whether or not you can look at the coronavirus statistics that are kept by your state, in our case, the Alabama Department of Public Health, and you can separate it out by age and sex, which, by the way, ours has. Is it good to have? Yeah. Am I glad that the Alabama Department of Public Health did that? Sure. Does it make a big difference on whether or not we actually had a good, you know, whether or not we had a good coronavirus response? Not really. I mean, it's nice to know, it's nice to have the statistics, and we've even gone over the statistics right here on this show from time to time, talking about the different age groups and how the, the different sexes are handling it, even though with the sex thing, it's, it's pretty much a non-factor based on everything that we've seen. But with the ages, it really is. And so it's a good thing that the states provide that. Does it necessarily mean that they have a better or worse coronavirus response? No. 
And so, again, I don't know why that's part of the rubric. And then here they go to unemployment benefits. This is their last segment. Relaxed eligibility criteria, expanded unemployment, passed the CARES Act. So in other words, having the CARES Act, since that's a federal program, doesn't count. They're talking about specifically state ones. And then expanded eligibility for undocumented workers. Okay, so this one's hilarious too. If you didn't believe that this was just a wish list for all the progressive things that leftists want, I mean, that's a pretty big tell right there. That they're actually gauging how uh, bad the state is based on whether or not you paid undocumented workers, in other words, illegal immigrants, to not work. If your state didn't look at illegal immigrants who aren't even supposed to be here and say, you know what, we'll pay you for sitting on your butt and, and watching cartoons and eating Cheetos. If your state didn't do that, that counts against you in this group. <laughs> you can't make this crap up, gang. And then it goes on underlying unemployment supports, which accounts for 15% of your overall score. A ratio of average unemployment benefits versus cost of living. So basically the, the sum of all of your unemployment benefits for your state versus the cost of living there. This just has to do with the unemployment itself. And Alabama has a low cost of living. So I imagine compared to other states, we actually didn't do too bad on this one, even though we don't have massive levels of unemployment like some of the bluer states. But... You know, that would remain to be seen. I don't really understand, again, what that has to do with how well... It, because they say for workers, but if you're unemployed, you're not a worker. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, maybe it should have been for workers or people that used to work. And, and I do genuinely feel like it's been a legitimate problem. People that lost their jobs with this virus. I'm not trying to downplay that or say it wasn't a concern or anything. I'm just saying that the levels at which people are losing their job or not being considered here, the levels at which people had to have their pay doctor, had to go on furlough for a time, which happened, by the way, even at Cumulus, where I work. That's not even being considered in this. It's basically, okay, here's all of the insane leftist policies that we would like states to, to implement, and if you don't do so, we're going to give you a low score. That's the issue that I'm bringing up here. And then finally, COVID-19 era housing food assistance. So a uh, moratorium on the eviction. This is what I was talking about earlier, that uh, if you are a landowner, then you have people on your land that were there, they, w whether they're renting an apartment or renting a home from you, renting a plot of land, whatever, that you cannot evict those people during this pandemic, which kind of sucks for you because let's say you're already getting hit pretty economically hard from this, and now you have tenants on your land that are not paying you and they're allowed to stay there as long as they want because the state implemented a job that said you cannot evict those people. Well, I guess your kids just have to starve. I guess your kids just have to go without until something can be done about that because what happens to the landlords? What happens to all of them and, and do, do their kids and do their families just not count? Are they just out of luck because of the business they happen to be in? Evidently, the answer is yes. Moratorium on utility shutoff. That one I have a little more sympathy for just because typically speaking, there probably are some exceptions to this, but it's, it's this way in the state of Alabama. When it comes to utilities, those are actually either cooperatives or government run things. They may not necessarily be government run, like they may technically be a private company, but they're a utility company that operates under the purview of the government. And so I still don't think that that's necessarily the, the way it should go. 
I don't think that you should be able to just not pay your power or water bill because of the pandemic. But I will say that at least with this, it's not necessarily a private person. It is the government that would be doing that. Then a rent grace period, again, same kind of thing that we're talking about earlier, and increased food assistance. So the government paying for your food in the wake of all this. So, I mean, you can see pretty quickly going through the list and actually reading the methodology that all this thing was was a giant leftist wish list. And if you didn't fulfill everything on the wish list, then they gave you a bad score. If you fulfilled most of the stuff on the wish list, they gave you a very good score. And so really what this study should have been titled is how progressive is your state? Now, if that had been the goal, if that had been the what they stated as the desired result to measure how progressive your state was, then this is actually a pretty good study. This will do a very good job of telling you how blue your state is. Yes, they, they did a fantastic job of that but they're billing it as though that it's bad for workers if this is the case without actually explaining why. And that's what's so ridiculous about it. Uh, that would be kind of like me going out and saying, you know what, I'm going to decide how all of the states did on their coronavirus response. And one of the key rubrics that I am going to use for that is, did you implement uh, gun control? Because if you did, I'm going to give you a bad score for that. The, the freer you are with your firearms, the less permits you have to have. For example, if you have constitutional concealed carry, which I believe 13 states do now, uh, if you have less state restrictions when it comes to being able to obtain a firearm, then if, is, if you have more freedom when it comes to the Second Amendment, I'm going to give you a very high score on that. Well, if that had happened... AL.com would have looked at that and laughed and said that's not newsworthy because that's not even what it's really measuring. Yes, that is correct. And that's why you shouldn't have published this either. Here, uh, there was a... Um, if I'd done the same thing for the tax rate, same thing. If I had said, you know what, the, the more free market your tax rate is and the lower your taxes are, like Texas would score very well because they don't have a state income tax. Delaware might score very well because they don't have a sales tax. I'd have to look at that. I don't know what Delaware's income tax is. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, if I were doing that and that were the rubric and that's what I was measuring, but then I referred to it as, at least that one I could kind of connect to the coronavirus because the less your state is taking from you in taxes, the less the, 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 impact, the economic impact of the pandemic is going to hit you. That is going to be accurate. You can keep more of your own money. At least I can kind of connect it to that one. There's a whole bunch of stuff in that that has nothing to do with the coronavirus or the state's response to it. And if I did that, then you wouldn't have news organizations like AL.com reporting on it because they would say, yeah, but that's not actually what you're measuring here. And I would say that's correct, which is why you should not have included a report about this, which does not do what it purports to do. So then the question becomes, why would AL.com report this? If it's so obviously flawed, if it's so obviously just a, a ruse to portray something that it doesn't actually portray, that it claims to measure a thing that it doesn't really measure, and it's so obvious for anybody doing 15 seconds of research that this is just a far-left organization using this as an excuse to bash all of the states that didn't implement their socialist policies that they wanted to put in place, why would AL.com publish that? The answer is simple. The same reason that people in the media tend to have a bias Either way, left or right, they see a story they like because it supports the worldview they already held before they saw the story, and because of that, they publish it. 
That's what happened here. Ale.com, for years, has shown that it has a seething disdain for the state in which it resides. It doesn't like Alabama. It thinks that we're a horrible, terrible place filled with backwoods hicks that don't know enough about politics to actually, you know, pay attention to it and vote correctly. That's what they think of you. And I could provide a laundry list of issues. We've gone over it on this show a hundred times of different articles that do exactly that. They have the same sort of idea about Alabama that Doug Jones does, where he talks about how ashamed he is of being from this state or uh, going on essentially the, it was sort of a, a mini Obama going on an apology tour about how terrible Alabama is and how, uh, you know, we're, we're backwards and, and we can do so much better, basically saying that anybody that does not agree with their leftist agenda is somebody that's backwards and, and backwards thinking and a Neanderthal and so on and so forth. Uh, we, we've seen political candidates on the left do this for years in the state of Alabama. And AL.com falls into that ideological mold. And because of that, they saw this was like, oh gosh, here's a study showing how terrible Alabama is. Let's publish it. That's who they are. That's how they see the state. That's how they see you. And because of that, this is the story that they saw an opportunity and ran to it with glee because it supported the worldview that they already held dear. That's why AL.com published this article. I hate to see it. I hate to see this mentality amongst people in Alabama, but that really is the way that they think. And their actions prove that over and over and over again. All right, we've got a fantastic interview coming up with Laurie Hughes, the author of Choose Zoe. That is coming up in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. Certainly appreciate you being with us. My next guest is Laurie Hughes. She's the author of the book Choosing Zoe. Now, you guys know that out of all of the political issues of the day that we could talk about, the one that is uh, the closest to my heart, the one that is really a single issue voter kind of thing for me. I, I've, I've become a single issue voter on this one for a number of reasons, which I've already explained. Uh, it is about abortion. And uh, this particular author, I'm going to go ahead and just go to her and let her tell you her story. But it is a fantastic story. And it is one that speaks to this issue of life that is so important to so many of us. So welcome to the program, Laurie Hughes. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Caleb. Well, it is fantastic to have you on, and uh, I would just like to go ahead and, and let you kind of intro yourself. I know a lot of hosts like to give a quick bio of the host or the, the guest. I like to just let you tell your own story, and I know that you're good at that. That's why you wrote this book in the first place. So just go ahead and give the audience an idea of, of what inspired you to write this book, uh, your background, and, and sort of give them an introduction to that. Sure. So, well, I was raised in uh, Billings, Montana. So we have quite different accents, you and I. We do and indeed. <laughs> I was the youngest of eight kids and I was raised uh, Catholic. We went to Catholic schools and my father and mother were both very pro-life. Mm. Um, I was in high school in the 70s when Roe v. Wade um, was brought into law. Right. Um, based on bad fetal development science. and Well, and also um, bad constitutionality, but I won't go off yes. on that tangent. A derivative right from a derivative right, but yeah. Definitely. And so you can imagine how scared I was um, mm. to tell my parents while especially going to Catholic school um, that I was pregnant. 
And so I kind of did what any other responsible teenager would do. And uh, my mom had said, I'm going to tell dad on the way home from the airport that you're pregnant. And I got scared. So I called up my boyfriend. I was like, come pick me up. And we went and sat in the church parking lot because we kind of knew where to go. We were in trouble. Mm -hmm. And I kept hearing my dad's words saying every baby is a blessing because my dad definitely taught us that we're all created in God's image, you know, how significant we are. And um, so that just kind of kept rolling around in my mind, uh, knowing that every baby is a blessing. And that really gave me the uh, encouragement to go home. And so I'm walking up this like super long driveway. I'm 15 years old. And I'm like praying to God that my dad's asleep. Mm-hmm. And I got to the door and I put my hand on that doorknob and I, I, I did the sign of the cross. I was pleased God let my dad be asleep. <laughs> and then the minute I opened up the door, there sits my dad, like always. He's sitting in his green velvet chair and he always wore these pop bottle glasses and mm-hmm. magnifiers and he was reading his Bible. And I just burst into tears. And my dad came over to me and he put his arms around me and he said, I love you. Mom said that uh, you're going to have a baby. And all I ask is that you will pray every day what's best for your baby, whether you uh, raise her with our guidance or whether you place her in adoptive arms. And he gave me a little kiss on the forehead. So now get to get to sleep. You have school in a couple of hours. We weren't allowed to miss school. (laughs) Right. For anything, apparently. Or <laughs> no, for anything. My parents really lived out the gospel of life. Mm. They didn't just talk about it. They weren't just pro-life when it was convenient or not their child. Like they meant what they lived and they meant um, mm. to follow what God says about the Bible. And many people now say, well, the Bible doesn't mention abortion. Uh, but there's so much in the Bible, you know, where it talks about child sacrifice and um, and, and just knowing that that we're all made unique and, you know, masterfully and, and fearfully, wonderfully made and in the image of God. I mean, that's, if that doesn't rock your world as far as uh, choosing life versus abortion, then really nothing will. Well, to the people and, that, that say that the scripture doesn't mention abortion, I mean, the scripture also doesn't mention firearms. That doesn't mean that it's okay to just shoot some random person on the street. Like that, that's a, a very weak argument. Uh, the, the Bible does speak to that so much, but uh, really what I, I want to sort of zero in on based on what you said there, um, two things. First of all, the way that your, your parents handled it, I thought was, you know, admirable in the sense that, yes, there is something that, that shouldn't have happened that happened, uh, but ultimately it seems like their first concern was for you and your child, and they already treated it like a child even back in this stage, and I think that, that it sounds like that was... Uh, something that was really important to you and, and left an impression on you. Absolutely. And and I was afraid, I mentioned, walking up that long driveway, even though my parents weren't, they never laid a hand on me. Sure. I was still very fearful. And that's what leads young girls um, primarily to abortion clinics. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even with the, the most celebrated unplanned pregnancy in the Bible, you know, with Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, um, right, our... Gabriel had to come. Yeah. Gabriel had to come separately to both Mary and to Joseph. And the mm-hmm. first thing he said is, do not be afraid. And so I, I believe that the way we treat someone initially is how we address the fear and how we bring peace into the situation. And my parents, what they did is they took the focus, like you said, off of the situation, off of the problem, so to speak, and they placed it on my welfare 
and the welfare of my unborn baby. Yeah, and I frankly, I think that was just a fantastic point to bring up the fact that uh, that was Gabriel's first thing that he said to both Mary and Joseph, and, and they were living in a time at which uh, you, you could literally be stoned to death for this. And so it was something that I really do think would, would speak to, uh, you know, that sensibility. And, and I can't really relate to that. I'm not a dad. I've, I've never, uh, you know, been in that situation. And of course, I've never been in the situation of being pregnant, obviously, because regardless of what <laughs> people are saying today, I can't do that. I'm a guy. Uh, <laughs> no matter what I identify as, I still can't get pregnant. Uh, but anyway, so that that's kind of your origin story and, and where it all started for you. But uh, as I understand, that was, uh, you know, just based on watching some of your interviews, that was not a one-time event either, that, that you actually had an unplanned pregnancy later on as well. Yes, um, I uh, didn't learn. So, uh, Kayla, most young ladies that are in uh, high school as teenagers or preteens that get pregnant, mm -hmm. the statistics are they'll be pregnant in about another year at about 50% of a rate. And so wow. that's whether they abort first, miscarry, um, carry out the pregnancy and place the baby for adoption or parent, um, they are pregnant again, 50% of the time. And it's rising, could even be higher now. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't learn my lesson, same boyfriend. Um, my parents, they weren't really versed in talking to me about my relationship. Um, they. They exemplified biblical morality, but they didn't really know how to talk to us kids, even though you would think they should have because I'd already, you know, me and my baby were living in their house. Right. And so um, I got pregnant again and again, like such a responsible teenager. I hid the pregnancy and uh, no one actually knew that I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And um, new girl came to town. She was from Chicago and. Uh, I caught her and my boyfriend rolling around in the park next to the school and I got into like a serious altercation with him. I mean, I was fighting him two blocks, you know, down the street Right. and um, just so stressed out. And I got home and I was really heartbroken and uh, my little girl, I uh, was putting her to bed about seven o'clock and, um, you know, she was kind of patting my face um, and just kind of, I felt like I was kind of coming back to life a little bit, you know, because I was really numb. And then I put her to bed and um, that night I didn't feel very good. And I started uh, having really bad labor pains in the middle of the night. And so I went into the bathroom and um, I, I delivered a little boy. Um, he was 22 weeks, um, which is viable. You know, babies yeah. 21, 22 weeks live outside of the womb now. And mm. um, so I just was totally in tears. Um, my mom, I was trying to call out to my mom, but I didn't wait and wake up my baby girl or my dad. And so when my baby girl woke up about 6.30 in the morning, I was still in the bathroom and um, my mom heard her squawk for her bottle. Mm. And so then she heard me crying and, and she came in to the bathroom and she's like, what's the matter? Are you okay? And then she said, oh, are you, are you pregnant again? <laughs> and I just said, not anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, she asked me if I could get up and the baby was still uh, attached to the umbilical cord and I hadn't delivered the placenta yet. And mm -hmm. so um, my mom took him and she told me to put a pad on and go to bed and she'd take me to the doctor in the morning that she was going to go take care of the baby. 
And, um, you know, I put my hand on that doorknob as well, going into my bedroom. And there was those little plaques and it said Lori's room and it was a little pink princess. And I remember like thinking to myself, like, I'm, I'm no princess. And I went to bed and I put those yellow flowered sheets over my head. And I really felt like I just kind of covered up all my shame and my postpartum loss. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't introduced to that. You know, I barely knew anyone that had died before. And then to see that, um, you know, was really, really hard. And I, I buried that memory for probably 25 years, mm-hmm. which is normal, you know, at home and in the churches. Um, even if we're married, a lot of times the, the women or the wife, the mothers, they won't, um, they won't get the proper healing afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe if the baby was born and stillborn, because more people are horrified, um, you know, mm-hmm. by that, rightly so. Um, But when I teach fetal development in the schools, um, this little baby here Mm -hmm. is um, 22 weeks. And this is the size um, that my little boy was, you know, fully formed. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about late term abortion, um, for any reason, you know, we're talking about this size all the way up um, to birth. And Right. Like I'll, I'll never forget my little boy was just like a fully formed human, you know, and to yeah. think that nowadays he could have lived maybe outside of the womb, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just incredible. And, you know, I'll never forget like his, his little hands and feet sprung out. And I remember thinking like, he'll never throw a ball, you know, real athletic in our family. Uh, he'll never walk. Um, but, you know, he had purpose in my life because he really drove me when you're that hurt no one really knows what you're going through and i'm irish twins you know not even a year apart and i'm going back to school and no one knows the pain and suffering that i'm going through um my mom didn't tell my dad at the time she wanted me to um you know get through the school year um and she was in shock too i think about what i did to my mother you know putting her in that situation certainly and she's the one that had to take care of the baby. Um, but really it, um, you know, it wasn't the teenage pregnancy crisis of giving birth and enjoying a beautiful baby girl that was just so happy or losing the little boy. It was the um, poor relationship with my boyfriend that had me really heartbroken because you're really not young enough. And this is why I love going into schools, talking to high school kids, because you're, you're not young, you're too young to navigate, you know, love, um, being a mom, having sex outside of marriage, uh, it's just, it's really outside of God's plan. And that heartache really drove me to accepting Christ as my personal savior. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the one that was there, the Holy Spirit, like to comfort me and to encourage me when I was alone at night. Um, you never know what someone's going through. You know, I'd walk down the halls at school and kids never knew what I was going through. And even in the high school, they didn't even know I'd kept my first baby. I was uh, sewing in home ec class one day, and I was sewing a a little uh, knit jersey t-shirt and some little corduroy pants. And the nun came up to check on my project, and she was like, "Um, oh, that's nice. Like, who are you sewing this for? You know, like a niece Mm. or, um, and everyone knew our family. Um, You know, all eight of us kids had gone there. And my brother was actually one of the teachers, one of the only lay teachers at the time. And I said, no, this is for my baby girl. And it wasn't within maybe two days when they had a 
a board meeting and some other moms came and said I wasn't a good example to stay at the school. And so I was kind of uh, politely asked to leave my parochial school, the only school I ever knew, mm. you know, same kids since first grade. And then I had to go to a big, scary high school where, where my boyfriend went and all the girls he chased after. And, so, and by the uh, way, I can relate to that because I went to the same school K through 12 my entire career. So, so the, the big, scary public school that I went to, it was so big, I couldn't even get from class to class, you know, trying to navigate that campus. Mm-hmm. And uh, my boyfriend went to school there and, uh, you know, he was um, prom king and played a lot of sports and uh, the girls he liked were also there. Um, and one of the girls, she used to just give me so much heck, like she would follow me bumper to bumper to my babysitter after school, um, kind of, you know, scaring me that they knew where my baby was at. And she was just really horrible. Like back in the seventies, that saying came out, um, that said today is the first day uh, of the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And her and her friends would like serial killers would, would cut out um, letters out of newspapers and they would put things on my locker. Like they said, today is the last day of the rest of your life. And then they would um, come to my house and they would uh, be rude to my mom and throw eggs at the house and, come to the door asking for me. And my mom would say like, why are you fighting over your both beautiful girls? Like, why are you fighting over this boy? And then um, my mom said, well, praise the Lord. Cause that was the seventies, right? When everyone said, praise the Lord for all mm-hmm. good and all bad. And um, you know, my parents were going to some full gospel meetings and women's aglow and uh, they were um, born again believers and um, charismatic Catholics at first. Mm-hmm. And uh so I would go back to the school and then these girls would come into my classroom when the teacher was speaking, which would have never happened in my Catholic school. Right. And they would start hollering at me, calling names, and then they would walk down the hall going, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And See, guys just, just beat each other up. We're a lot better at that. <laughs> we uh, got to that. We got to that. Oh, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I was, yeah, <laughs> just trying to lighten awful. the mood, but yeah, that's. Awful. So, you know, it's you you think of the drama, the same drama goes on today, you know. I'll yeah, be does, in yeah. pregnancy clinic with young girls in high school and they're going through the same drama, you know, the boys just using them for sex or not really in love or caring about her and um, you know, and then she's in this crisis pregnancy and um it's still number one, uh the boy that will coerce or uh suggest for the, the girlfriend to go have an abortion. Um, sadly, moms are not far behind. We have a whole lot of post-abortive women um, since Roe v. Wade who are mothers now. And even though they were harmed by abortion and hurt, they'll say like, you know, you, you have your whole life ahead of you. You're not going to have this boy's child. And they will um, take their own daughter to the pregnancy clinic. Um, the last young lady that I talked to, she said she was uh, throwing up in the toilet and her mom mm. came and just grabbed her hair out of the toilet and said, you know, come on. And she took her down to Planned Parenthood um, and they did an abortion the very next day. And she was telling her at, when after she had the abortion, she was crying. And her mom said to her, um, let me get this right. Her mom said, oh, at least it wasn't as bad as when I had to do it. Like abortion had improved or something. Yeah. And so her mom had yeah. had a rough go. 
but also wasn't willing to support her daughter uh, with an unplanned pregnancy. So there, we've got a lot of training parents uh, to mm -hmm. do. And, and one of my favorite things in the book is teaching parents to be able to talk to their children about their bodies and about sexuality from the time they're little. And that way it's age appropriate. Mm -hmm. And you're not just having some weird, uncomfortable conversation when they're a teenager, they may have already had sex and you're going in there and saying, um, do you know about, uh, you know, right. how and babies are made or something? It's like so awkward and it's so late. Really need to mm -hmm. have those conversations um, before junior high, um, especially in 25 states now, girls can have abortions uh, without their parents' consent or even knowledge. And so we really need to have those uh, conversations. You know, it's mm -hmm. illegal for a 12-year-old to have sex, but it is legal uh, for them to go in and have an abortion and, and parents never know. And mm. even then there's laws in the 25 states where the school district is involved. So you just, uh, the young girl can just go into her principal or tell a teacher or the, or the nurse and she can leave to have an abortion. And then the school cannot tell you your son or daughter was not there. Like normally I have five kids. If someone was to miss school, I'd get a call. Right. Even if I'd already called and said we had a doctor appointment, I would get a call and it would say like, Jeffrey missed one or two more periods today. Mm -hmm. But in the, in the sense of that you going in for birth control and abortion, uh, the school can't even tell you that they were not there. You know, and, and I think that speaking as somebody, I mean, I know Montana is a red state as well, uh, but you live in California now, correct? Yes, I do. Right. See, a lot of people in red states, they, I think, kind of get this false sense of security and complacency when it comes to that because they think, oh, well, you know, we're, we're in a pro-life state. I mean, Alabama is literally the only state on the books now that actually says abortion is illegal. Now, because of federal law, that doesn't really take effect. But um, they, they think because of that, they're immune to this stuff. And I tell them all the time, I was like, look, right here in Montgomery, Alabama, in this city, we uncovered a case uh, about a year and a half ago of a 13-year-old girl who her rapist was taking her to Planned Parenthood and getting two abortions for her within the span of a year to cover up the fact that he was raping her. I mean, this stuff happens everywhere. And so just because it's a red state, don't think that these things can't happen to your kids. Absolutely. And that's a perfect case is like, you know, a, a predator of rape or even when uh, someone traffics, mm -hmm. you know, the girls. Um, Planned Parenthood has been caught. There's, you know, several different cases where they've been caught, where they have not identified that the um, that the person was older, and in that fashion, they have also aided and abetted to some trafficking instances, and that's really huge in the news right now. But you know, when when they talk about women's health, I, I think one thing we can agree on is that 12 year old, 13 year old, you know, they're not women. No. So it has nothing to do with healthcare, but even if I can talk to moms about, you know, that they're not a woman yet, mm -hmm. that these choices are um, too tough to navigate and they are taken advantage of and they're with wrong kind of guys and, and older guys seek prey, especially in single parent homes. You know, as predators going after underage girls, um, they'll a lot of times have a soft target. They'll target, uh, child of a single mom, so to speak, mm. because the uh, parental guidance isn't there at home sometimes. Mm. Um, and as far as protection of the of the child, so not really a parental guidance, but mm. um, just the protection is looking there. And so 
predators will often find a soft target and that's what they call a soft target. Mm -hmm. um, that could be even at your church or that could be through the Girl Scouts or it could be through the wrestling coach. Um, but it's also just older guys in town um, that are you know, more predator types. And so when they get somebody pregnant, um, even sometimes they'll go through the mom, which is like the gatekeeper, mm -hmm. because they'll say, oh, like, I'm going to teach your, uh, I'm going to tutor your daughter in math, or, you know, I'm going to help her um, with softball or, and so they gain the trust of the parent. And so they're more easily um, able to get to the young girl. Mm. And it's amazing how you can manipulate, you know, a young person. And so whether it's a predator and they end up, you know, raping the girl and taking her to Planned Parenthood or whether it's a trafficker taking somebody to Planned Parenthood, um, like I said before, Planned Parenthood has been caught um, in, in abetting those type of crimes, just you right. know, covering up the, the sexual predator crime and adding uh, the abuse of it, it's terrible. Uh, I'm a right. mandated reporter. Mm -hmm. and <laughs> More often than not, they just don't ask any questions, but you're right. There have been several cases where they actually help cover that kind of thing up, which, um, you know, horrible and callous as this is, that's their business. They make money off yeah. of that. So they, they do have a, a financial incentive to do that. Uh, one thing that I wanted to address, though, that kind of plays off something that you said a few minutes ago, uh, about how uh, in, in your personal story and then also just in general uh, with, with your boyfriend, that this is the, the kind of guy that was not interested in, in helping out with the, the child once it came and, uh, uh, you know, how horrible he was. And then also talking about some of these predator types uh, constantly, especially as a, a man that's pro-life we're often told and sort of badgered by what well, you're not allowed to have an opinion because you're a man and you can't possibly relate to this. And this isn't really your place to speak on this. And one thing that I get agitated about is the most pro choice people, the most pro abortion men are men like that because abortion gives them an out. It gives them a freedom from the responsibility of that. And like you said, normally it's the boyfriend that is the one that tries to convince the girl and, and talk her into abortion, even if she doesn't want to. And so um, if you could just sort of, I mean, is, am I on the right track here? Because typically the pro-abortion men that I find are the worst kinds of men that don't care about the girls. Yeah, and that's why it's so important to, you know, teach sons um, how valuable young ladies are and how valuable, um, children are, mm. um, and to get more, more guys involved in the situation, uh, even at church, um, to, to empower men to know that this is like 50% of their child. They absolutely have as much right to that child. Um, you can have a law, but it doesn't mean it's uh, moral or it's a good thing, or it came from God. That's the second statement that Gabriel said to Joseph was to marry Mary and to be a father to Jesus. And that's what men need to tell men is that it is their responsibility. So we start there where men are um, back in the conversation as far as being men and being providers and protectors of the women and having their children. But also then that uh, when men are in this situation, that other people in the church come by them and, you know, help them mentor them into fatherhood. Uh, we have some young guys that come into the pregnancy clinic and they can go through some of the parenting classes and it's always awesome. They want to learn. And every school that I go into, when I ask the guys, 
Um, you know, do they want to, uh, you know, have one wife parent their children? They all say yes. Mm -hmm. And many of them are from broken homes, but they want it. So they just need, they just need some guidance. Um, but we need yeah. men. We badly need men in the pro-life movement and we need men that will speak up and cherish life, but also protect the young girls and protect the, the women in general. Um, we, we need them. You know, if it wasn't for well, my father, my situation might not have turned out so well. Mm -hmm. And my boyfriend, you know, he didn't have a dad. He, he didn't learn those types of things. Um, he, he loved my daughter. We went over there all the time, you know, with his mom and sister. Mm -hmm. He just didn't have the skills or the, um, you know, the role model. It's very important um, to be a role model, especially to, to young men that are raised in single parent homes. We have a, a real problem. Uh, we need more dads. We need more dads like mine. Um, and guys want it. They yeah. really want to do the right thing. G generally speaking, so, that's true. And you know, what, what you said there is so important because uh, when it comes to, I think that this is sort of a side effect of two things. First of all, it's a side effect of us decoupling sex and responsibility because they're, you know, th that's what the marriage contract is, isn't it? It's saying that, okay, I'm engaging in a contract that I'm going to love and protect this person as my partner. And then also you get to enjoy some of the benefits that come along with that. But we, we've sort of decoupled that. And frankly, I think it's a, a horribly sadistic ploy that one that worked out really well for terrible men is that somehow they convinced women that uh, having sex without any responsibility is empowering somehow. I don't get how they made that sales pitch, but you know, somehow they, they pulled that off to where uh, a lot of modern feminists think, yeah, having sex with a lot of guys with no responsibility or no benefits beyond that is, is a positive thing. I don't know how they, they got to that point. Um, yeah, it's so selfish and they have everything to gain because if they pay for an abortion, then they don't have to pay for child support for 18 years. Right. You um, know, so for them, it's like, let's just uh, have everything selfish and then just kind of cover up the crime. And a lot of times women will go have the abortion because to save the boyfriend and girlfriend relationship, hmm. but the, the, the pain that she goes through and she doesn't get the support from the man that coerced her into the abortion and they end up breaking up anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's not a win-win for the, no, for the woman. No, no, certainly not. And, uh, one thing that I, I wanted to ask about, because now you've probably picked up on this in, in our conversation, I'm very much a, a, a philosopher, like I can handle things on a moral level, I can talk through it, the talking points and, and give you a, a you know detailed presentation as to why abortion is immoral and all of that, and that's all good and I think that that's needed, but the pro-life movement in general struggles with emotional appeal. And we've just never been as good at that as the other side. And so, uh, you know, very early on when before Roe v. Wade happened and all of that, uh, the pro-life argument, I think, somewhat fell on deaf ears when all of a sudden the pro-abortion people started uh, painting it as women's health and protecting women. And we just never really figured out a good answer to that. Uh, I mean, I, I, obviously on the moral side, we do. But, you know, we, we struggle with that emotional appeal. And so uh, is that something that your book really sort of hits at? And, and if so, how can how can people that are advocates of life, how can we do a better job on that front? Right. Um, by sharing conversations and by being loving, uh, then we're very attractive. So like anything, if you point at two sides, then it's ad adversarial. 
-hmm. if you have an enemy, it's going to always be adversarial. So when you think to yourself that pro-choice people might not be educated, then you can go from there. And then you go share your own stories. Um, I can share mine and I can come off in a very loving way. Um, also, I lead a post-abortive ministry at my church called mm -hmm. the Movement of Love. So I'm always in the back of my mind. I know that when I talk to someone who's pro-choice and uh, maybe uh, confrontational, then there could be hurt under there from their own abortion. And so you, you need to have a gingerly talk, um, kind words and um, empathy towards someone. And when you ask a lot of questions, it's very good tool to ask That's something questions. Jesus did a lot. Yeah, yeah. And when you ask questions, you're gonna see where this is coming from. You're gonna see if they even have any, um, any, any proof or scientific proof. They might not know anything. They could just be regurgitating rhetoric um, that they're hearing from that camp. And so mm -hmm. it's really important to share our stories, to be open and to, um, to in conversation, just to be really loving. And when you do that, uh, you disarm uh, all of the negativity and you're really able to celebrate. And so when you talk about women's health, well, abortion is not better than giving birth. It's, mm -hmm. it's worse for a woman. Um, and we have you know, women that have trouble conceiving after or carrying their babies to term, you know, more miscarriages. And so when mm -hmm. you just look into just the medical proof, it's not healthy for women. It's also not healthy for um, their emotions. And so um, pro-choice people will use a lot of emotion but we don't make sound decisions out of emotion. If we did, fear would drive us all to the abortion clinic. Right. And so what we have to do is uh, address those fears, but ask what's going on with people. And if you can get someone to, uh, to calm their emotions down, then there could be more reasoning that happens. Mm -hmm. And you can teach them about fetal development. You can find out if a young person, so to speak, um, needs help with uh, rent or, um, or food or school. Um, when you listen, and whether you're listening to a young person that's pregnant and is um, looking at all of her options, or whether you're looking at a pro-choice person, they all have their own experiences. And what you do is you listen to them, then you're able to um, find some commonalities and, um, and, and get to the truth. But it's, it's very, very back to the emotional ploy that they had. Um, we can show our emotions too. And good emotions always uh, are going to outlive the bad. When you scroll on Facebook, you know, and someone's like, I have cancer, someone died, you know, you'll, you'll get some responses. But when you say like, happy birthday, or you do a gender reveal and having a baby girl, like everyone comments on it mm -hmm. because it's so attractive. And so giving birth is attractive, but being introduced to motherhood. Um, yesterday, all over Twitter, it was Candace Owens, you know, because she's pregnant. She oh, I actually her. didn't know that. This is the first time yeah. hearing. Yeah. Yeah, she saw her baby's image. She saw the ultrasound picture, and it made her fully pro-life. So she was pro-life, but had, you know, wrestled with some of the exceptions, like a lot of Christians do. Mm -hmm. You know, you can talk to people and you can say, what if my daughter's raped or what if the baby has a fetal abnormality or what if my, my wife's um, uh, health is at risk or something sure. you know, or her life. And 
so my book's especially good at that, really helping even Christians and pastors understand what it means to be fully pro-life. And for Candace, it was seeing her, um, you know, little embryos image on the uh, ultrasound. And 90% of women will choose life once they've seen the ultrasound picture with the heartbeat and the little, you know, shape of the baby and little legs and feet kicking around. And um, so she was very candid, so to speak, that she had some reservations, but is now 100% fully pro-life. And I just thought that was, you know, so exciting because there's nothing like becoming a mom or becoming a dad or becoming a grandparent. There's just nothing like it. And when we share our powerful stories of adoption mm -hmm. or if we become a foster mom, um, whatever it is, when we share those stories, it's attractive. That's what really hurts the pro-choice camp is all the stories. Um, they, they can't deny fetal development anymore. They don't even try to say, you know, that it's not a baby. They just say it's like not wanted. Like it doesn't matter. I can do what I want. So they are still wrong scientifically. And I think that a lot of young people and people in high school and college that say it's my body, my choice. Um, they're just repeating rhetoric because scientifically everybody knows it's a unique person with a different blood type. Um, and so they can't really say it's not a baby, but now they say, well, it's my right. It's my choice. It's unwanted. I don't want it. I'll have babies later. And, right. you know, that's, that's what we need to really speak to is uh, the wantonness of the child and come around the young lady and let her know how we can, you know, be a part of aiding her and helping her. There's lots and lots of uh, people that will come by her side and you'll hear people on the pro-choice camp saying, well, um, you know, you only care about people when they're in the womb. And that's just like ridiculous. Um, we are by far the ones that do adopt and mm -hmm. become foster parents. And yeah, I mean, the, the vast majority, I actually did a study on that uh, not too long ago, the vast majority of like adoption agencies, foster homes, orphanages, they're Christian funded. And so yeah. the, the idea that we're anti-kid is just ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it was four to one, like uh, yeah. Christian charity versus all other charities and government. So, yeah. uh, I mean, that's absolutely true. And, and people just don't know that or don't see that side of it. And so it's really important to shed light on that. Um, one thing that I, I do think that this does a world of good on because there's, I know it's a tired old argument. I know it's not true, but it gets pushed out there as though it is truth. And a lot of people buy into it uh, that all pro-lifers are just a bunch of uh, old white religious men that are trying to push right. their beliefs on everybody else. And so uh, having these kinds of real stories, it, it does put an, an actual person, a face on it. And I think that that's a, a big difference. So if somebody is interested in sharing these stories and, and even sharing your story with them and, and wants to get your book and, and do that, where would they go to do that? Uh, well, you can get my book at uh, amazon.com. It's probably the easiest way. And um, the title of the book is Choose Zoe, Z-O-E. Mm -hmm. um, and Zoe is the Greek word for life in John 10, 10, where it says that Jesus came to give us life more abundantly. Because to me, pro-life is also pro-eternal life. And when someone's struggling with pro-life, um, it's a grand opportunity to disciple them. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the tagline is, um, well, here's, here's the book here. Oh, good. We get to see it. <laughs> and it's uh, Choose Zoe, A Story of Unplanned uh, Parenthood and the Case for Life. 
And I chose Unplanned Parenthood because it's about the parenting. You know, pregnancy is only nine months mm -hmm. and it's uh, definitely, you know, more than that. Uh, right. So we need to focus on the, the, the whole life of, of being a parent and everything. Uh, I also have a, a choosezoe.com mm. and uh, there's an email there where you can reach out back and forth. I love to talk to people. Um, many times after a talk like this, it always is really cool because a lot of men will reach out to me <laughs> because they'll want to talk for the first time about um, having having their old girlfriend go in and have an abortion or something. Mm. Or they'll tell me I wasn't there for my wife when I was miscarrying because I was going through my own pain and she thought I wasn't, but we weren't, you know, helping each other because many, many ma marriages will break up after mm. a miscarriage or loss of even a toddler mm. uh, because they're both grieving and um, they don't understand that they grieve differently. So, you know, men will want to talk about pregnancy loss primarily. And then, you know, young girls will call me sometimes and, you know, tell me, you know, that they were, they were raped and, um, one girl reached out to me and she said, um, you know, she was, she was raped by her own father and um, ostracized by the family. And then her dad um, went to uh, prison. Right. And she didn't know what to do. And so she was going to church. So the pastors um, adopted her little boy. And then she was able to continue school. And on Sunday she would get to go and, and see him at school. And it was just a really, really beautiful, you know, win-win uh, situation. Mm -hmm. And when we were talking, she told me that she wanted to take her life when she found out that she was pregnant mm -hmm. and that the baby growing inside of her gave her a reason to live and actually saved her life. And all the other girls that I know that were raped and chose abortion, they all say they had like two traumas, like, mm -hmm. you know, double trouble. And the, the ones that I know that I've spoke to over the years have all said the same thing that um, they felt really good, whether they parented or maybe they even miscarried or uh, placed the baby for adoption, that it was a healing time for them um, while pregnant because they could get the focus off of their own life and they were doing something, you know, important with the child. Mm. And, you know, even in the pregnancy clinic um, and we talked earlier about underage girls and the, my whole purpose for writing choose Zoe we had three 12 year olds pregnant in my town here in California within one month mm. and when I met with the third girl um, at the pregnancy clinic and you know I, I told her I was also pregnant as a teenager I understood her fears uh, we talked about uh, her positive pregnancy test the development of her little growing um, you know embryo at the time and um, she was able to talk about the bad relationship with her boyfriend and how would she tell her parents. And uh, then we prayed and something quite miraculous happened because prayer is so powerful. Mm -hmm. And she kind of braced herself for me to call the authorities. Um, I was really strong going through that with her, wanting to make sure that she was okay and getting all the help that we could give. Mm. And then I just went home that night and I just cried out to God, you know, cause I was 15 and I had good sure. parents and, yeah. It's like these little girls are 12. Like I had a banana seat bike when I was 12. Um, I just got a right. trainer bra and I mean, just a little kid. And I went home and I just cried out to God, like, how can I help? And in the middle of the night, it was like three 30 in the morning. I felt this nudging, like get up, right. 
educate my people. And I, I've never even written an article. And so I began to write and I wrote on pregnancy and pregnancy loss, everything I knew about the um, pro-life um, organizations and how we could connect. And I put every resource I could, I could find um, is in the book. And it's, um, it's, it's been a real, a real joy. I, I teach a lot of uh, sanctity human life. I go out to churches during that time and, um, and speak on that. And so it's, it's just really important. Um, pastors, leaders, parents, they all need um, the education and, and they may need healing. You know, many times the parent needs healing before they're able to openly discuss this with their own uh, children. But, um, you know, these, these young girls, it was like a real pivotal, a pivotal change in my life. And, you know, to, to think that I was such a young girl mm. and um, I'm fighting for these underage girls you know, every day, whether it's by putting my arm around one of them and walking them through the situation or whether it's at school and I'm trying to prevent it with the young boys and girls. Mm. Um, and, you know, during this whole process, I get told by one of my own daughters um, that she had a secret abortion mm. when she was young. Wow. And I didn't know this. And so she'd struggled for decades um, with her own, you know, problems. And she's in a lot of recovery with Celebrate Recovery uh, as a leader. I mean, my daughter's like a with it kind of girl. She has her master's, like she's this amazing human being. She talks way more uh, education, educated than I do. And um, she's just doing like really big things for the community. She also works in mental health. And um, a couple of years, she was the um, director at our pregnancy clinic in Napa, California. And she's just an amazing human being, but she couldn't hide the secret abortion that she'd had. And so she shared it with me and I was just in a fetal position. I had no yeah. idea that you could grieve an aborted grandchild, just like you would grieve like someone who was living and died, you know, cause the, the baby is living and right. the baby's future was lost. Like I want that grandchild. Sure. I have 11 of them. I, I want that wow. one. <laughs> 11. And, and I love kids. And so, you know, my first thing that I said to her was, I'm so sorry. And I'm so sorry that you went through this mm. because I would have never suggested this for my daughter, sure. like other parents do. I also would never want to know that any of my kids went and had a surgery with nobody there for them and totally unassisted. You know, mm -hmm. so um, I was grieving what my daughter went through and grieving the loss of her baby, my grandchild. Um, but the way God works and the way he redeems our life, uh, her and I right now, along with um, our pastor, Joan, our pastor's wife, uh, we're writing post-abortive curriculum mm -hmm. for churches uh, together, the three of us. And um, my daughter's also on leadership with the post-abortive ministry. And she's very vocal. She'll talk about it. And like I said, you know, she's articulate. She's beautiful. She's lived it. And um, she's definitely changing lives. Uh, it's really exciting. And, you know, my kids are part black also. And so um, that speaks to the old, old white man theory. <laughs> yeah, that too. Um, yeah. I also have a, yeah, I have a daughter with like big curls and she's with, um, Pro-Life San Francisco, who does amazing things. 
um, even with Democrats for Life, they're they're really teaming up on you know let's this is the the gravest injustice of our time, abortion, and let's you know let's collectively do what we can uh, to save lives. Well, I tell and, you, I, just personally, I'd really love for my congregation to get some of the material that's designed for churches from you. So I may actually ask you about that a little bit later. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I think that one thing you said is just so, so important, and especially with sharing the, the experience with your own daughter, is that I think one of the biggest draws for the pro-life movement is that we see, rightfully so, I'm not saying that this is an incorrect uh, perception here, but we see these babies as these defenseless, fragile little things that need protection, which is correct. But sometimes we forget that the girls involved in them are also fragile little things that also need protecting. And so it's it's a a losing battle to come at them uh, in a way that doesn't keep that in mind. Um, and, and I think that you've sort of articulated that very well. But that's all the time that I've got. Thank you so much for being on here and, and being generous with your time. It has been a real pleasure. Laurie Hughes, author of Choose Joey, uh, Choose Zoe, <laughs> Choose Zoe. Uh, you can pick that up, uh, you know, wherever books are sold, I suppose. <laughs> And uh, also choosezoe.com. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you too, Caleb. I really appreciate it. And, you know, my book was censored and labeled uh, political by Facebook and Instagram. And they shut my publisher's accounts down for over a year and a half. So I've, um, I've been just really out there trying to spread the word since I got denied a platform and the ability mm. to purchase ads. And uh, censorship is real. Yeah. So I really appreciate you um, giving me you know, this opportunity uh, to be on air and speak to the people in Alabama. So hopefully I'll be able to come see you all sometime and enjoy some of that Southern hospitality. Well, if you ever are uh, here in town, feel free to come by. We'll have you in for another interview and I'll take you to get some biscuits and gravy or some barbecue or some, some authentic Southern go. food. That's <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> and, and if I ever come your way, I expect to get some really good pizza. So... <laughs> Absolutely. I know some places. Some of that California pizza. Yeah, all right. Well, thank you, Laurie. I appreciate it. Thank you, Caleb. God bless. God bless Bye, you everyone. Too. All right. We'll be back in just a minute on tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we go straight to the hill and just to to give you a little bit of setup and, and background on this, the left has been trying this strategy, and by the left I mean the media, and by the media I mean the left. They have they have morphed into uh, one giant Frankenstein monster at this point. They're they're indistinguishable from one another. So the Hill actually put out this piece, and and there have actually been several pieces. I'm just picking one specific one to give you as an example, but there's been no shortage of pieces that's essentially try to play up this angle of the violent riots and what has happened in the wake of, uh, whether you're talking about George Floyd, Jacob Blake, Breonna Taylor, uh, Ahmed Aubrey. And by the way, some of these, I think that the police actually, well, Ahmad Aubrey is not really fair because it wasn't really a police officer, even though law enforcement definitely did some incorrect things there. But I don't want to get bogged down in that. Uh, this article tries to speak to the idea that the riots were either justified or not really as bad as they seem. And this has been the game that the the left has been playing for quite some time now. They used to be much more so solidly in the camp of 
the, either the one of two things, either the riots were just not happening, they're a figment of your imagination, just ignore what you're seeing, ignore your own eyes, ignore the news feed that you're seeing, uh, it's all made up, it's all a hoax. And then there were people on the other side of that, still on the left, but on the other side of that narrative saying, yes, the riots are happening and they're justified and what they are doing is correct and, and you can't be angry at them for that. And so that has shifted a little bit, and I'll talk about the political implications, but you can see this is a really good example of how that's playing out. This is a tweet from The Hill showing this article that I'm talking about. Look, over 90% of protests this summer were peaceful, report shows. Oh, well, if it was 90% peaceful, that would, I guess, fit into this narrative that they're trying to push that they're mostly peaceful protests. Now, 90% actually seems pretty darn low to me, but we'll go ahead and dig into this article and I'll give it gives you a little taste of where they're trying to go and, and the way that they're trying to basically make you think that the riots really aren't as bad as people are pointing them out to be. Headline from the Hill, and you just saw the headline uh, on that tweet, and then it goes into the article saying, despite several incidents of protest against racism and police brutality turning violent, more than 90% of the summer's protests were peaceful, according to an, an, uh, an analysis released on Thursday. The report produced by the nonprofit Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project identified 7,750 protests between May 26th and August 22nd in 2,400 locations, according to the Washington Post. So, by the way, that's another thing. When I said that the entire media is running with this, this Hill article is derivative from a Washington Post article, which is derivative from a survey or a, a study done by this particular group. And so they're all just intermingling with one another. And that in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, sometimes the Blaze talks about whatever the Daily Wire is talking about, so on and so forth. But <laughs> it does show they're not even looking at the study itself. They're looking at the Washington Post report on the study, which causes me to raise a little bit of an eyebrow. I don't think that it's necessarily something nefarious, but just something that's interesting to note. They continue on. The report found that 220 became quote-unquote violent, and by the way, that's not me adding the quotation marks. You can actually see, if you were looking at this paper or if you read this article, they have violent in quotation marks. I kid you not. And then they go in, a term defined, talking about violence, a term defined as demonstrators fighting with police or counter-protesters. The term also applies to demonstrations that resulted in property damage. Okay, so I got really nervous after that first sentence because I was like, okay, so they're only counting if they hurt another person. They're not counting the incidents of property damage. Property damage actually is included in this rubric. Uh, in 93% of cases analyzed, there was no violence. Whew! Guys, I got to tell you, I was nervous there for a second. I was really thinking that the number was going to be a big number. I was thinking it was going to be bad. There's only, only, guys, 220 violent protests by the Hill's own admission. Sometimes it really does surprise me, and I understand from a journalist's perspective, because I have been a journalist before. I wasn't one for very long, but I did work for a newspaper. I was a hard news journalist for a while. And uh, <laughs> when you're writing a story, you do have sort of an obligation to, even if the facts don't match up with what you thought it was going to say, 
you have an obligation to continue to report that even if the facts don't fit what you thought they were going to say beforehand. Sometimes I have to do that on this show, that I set out to do a segment, even though I'm not a journalist and I don't have to do this, I'm not even really compelled to do it, that I will start out looking at a statistic and I'll be like, huh, that statistic shows the opposite of what I thought it was going to show. Well, I have an obligation to come out and say it anyway. I have an obligation to, if I crunch the numbers and I look at the statistics and I was going to make a point and the stats show something else, I tend to make it, it's just sort of a personal rule of mine because like I said, I'm not a journalist. I bring that information to you regardless, even if it cuts against what I'm saying, because here's the thing. Then that means that I'm wrong and I have to adjust what I thought. What's so funny about this though, and the reason I don't think that this is what's going on in this Washington Post article is because, or sorry, the, the Hill is that the Washington Post is the article that they are drawing from. So in other words, they knew what the story was ahead of time, they knew what the stats were, and then basically took aspects of that Washington Post story and made it into a story of their own. Which again, inherently there's not technically anything wrong with. But if that is what they did, and by their own admission it is in this article, that means that they saw the numbers ahead of time and was like, you know what? This would be something that would really help our cause. We should put this out there as news. Did you really think that telling people that 220 violent protests have taken place over the course of this summer, that that's something that's a point in your favor, The Hill? They really are talking about this and bragging about it, as though having 93% of the protest being peaceful is some kind of giant feather in their cap. That two only, only 220 protests that turned violent, which resulted in either people getting injured, people fighting with other people, or property damage, that that's a big W in their column. No. No, it ain't. And this madness continues to go on. Think about it this way. You remember the horrible shooting that happened at the Emanuel Church in South Carolina, where this insane white supremacist, which is a piece of human debris, breaks into a church, sits down with that church to study the Bible for about 45 minutes, and then only after the conclusion of this Bible study does he pull out a handgun and start killing people, which resulted in the murder of nine. If we're going by this rubric, if we're following their logic, that is a mostly peaceful massacre. Because he was there for about 45 minutes. He was only shooting for about five or six. So 90-ish percent, about the same level of, or if you're doing it by a percentile, roughly the same percentage of I don't even want to say his name because I don't like giving credence to mass shooters, but the shooter in that case, I know his name, I just don't want to say it. In the Emanuel Church shooting, that was a mostly peaceful visit to church. Most of the time that he was there, he was sitting in the pew, he was not hurting anybody, he was completely peaceful. It's only that last few minutes where he started killing people that it was no longer peaceful. And remember that over 30 people have died to this date in these violent riots, some of whom are not white people. Officer Dorn comes to mind, for one. But just looking at this, it amazes me that they thought that somehow this was going to help their cause, that this made the riot seem not as bad. 
you can't just say that because a certain percentage of it was peaceful, therefore it's okay. I don't have a problem with them putting out the statistic or showing the number of people or the number, number of riots comparatively that were doing this, but the fact that the Hill is putting this out as a propaganda piece, trying to make people think, oh, well, the riots really aren't that bad and most of them were peaceful, who freaking cares? If it were 99% and there were only one violent riot, that's one too many. If there are people that died in that, their families are not consoled by the, the fact that, oh, over in another city somewhere else, there was a peaceful protest. Okay, good for them. Doesn't help the fact that there were 220 violent ones. And what irritates me about this is the left would never let anybody that isn't on their ideological side get away with this. Now, with the Tea Party, for example, there were multiple, multiple Tea Party rallies. I went to several of them. I was not one of the earliest adopters, but I went to an awful lot of Tea Party events, Tea Party protests. I've been to several meetings. I've spoken at Tea Party meetings. I mean, I'm about as involved as it gets. You know how many of them have been violent to date? Zero. Zero. Not one. In fact, on my show, I remember getting into this argument with a caller that not only were they peaceful, but because uh, I think they had, what was it, like a giant Trump pinata that some leftist organization not long after it was, uh, I don't think it was Antifa. I want to say it was the, I don't even want to say their name because the the name itself is grotesque, but the, the women's march or whatever, the ones that had the you-know-what hats, that they had like a Trump pinata that they bashed and then burned in effigy. And I said, the Tea Party would never get away with that if they had done that. The media would have just let them have it. And I had several callers. I don't remember exactly how many, but I had several callers back when I was doing the call-in show on the radio. They called in and said, well, they did the same thing to Obama. The Tea Party did that. No, they didn't. Show me where that happened. The Tea Party didn't even burn a depiction of the guy that they didn't like that was in office. Much less actually cause property damage or tear up cities. Heck, when it came to the 828, which the anniversary was just last week, or maybe week before last, it was, it was close. It, very recently, because it was, of course, on August the 28th. I was at that one. We picked trash up that we didn't even leave. I've never seen the mall that trash free as a couple of hours after everybody had started filing out. DC has never been able to keep the mall that clean before. That's who the Tea Party was. And yet the media constantly decried them as evil and hateful and all of this stuff. We weren't tearing anything up. We weren't, they called us dangerous and violent and all of this stuff. And yet none of this ever happened with the Tea Party. Not once. And they're doing a victory lap because 93% of the riots or the 93% of the protests turned out to be uh, peaceful protests as opposed to riots. There were only 220 violent protests. You've got to be freaking kidding me. They would never let anybody on the right do this. And even though these people aren't really on the right, and I've done episode after episode after episode of why the alt-right actually isn't the right. Um, in fact, their name suggests that they're not alternative to the right. That's what alt-right means. But anyway, the alt-right protest with the, the neo-Nazis and the Klan that happened in Charlottesville. Remember what happened there? One person 
in a Dodge Challenger killed another person by ramming them. Was that wrong? 100%. Absolutely. Those people are vile, disgusting pigs. And the idea that we have march, uh, Nazis marching openly in the streets of the United States scared the mess out of me and should have scared the mess out of you, too. If it didn't, I question, I question your sanity, to be perfectly honest. But the, you remember the media doing this? You remember the Hill going through and saying, well, you know, uh, that whole protest, there were 400 people and only one person was violent. So, yeah, it was a mostly peaceful protest. I don't remember the Hill doing mental gymnastics and backflips trying to make sure that everybody knew, don't worry, guys, there was only one incidence of violence that happened at this protest. The entire rest of the day was peaceful. Y you got to put this into perspective. The media wasn't doing that. And they shouldn't have, just like they shouldn't be doing it now. Let's continue on because this next line, this next line just kills me. In the violent cases, the report said, the violence was, quote, largely confined to specific blocks rather than dispersed throughout the city. Media was playing this game all weekend, guys. I can't tell you the number of left-wing media sources that I saw posting like random pictures of parks that had not been affected by the riots and being like, see, they didn't destroy everything. It was just one particular block or a couple of city blocks or whatever. Who freaking cares? Why is that a big deal? We're not focusing on the stuff that didn't get destroyed. We're focusing on the stuff that did. I mean, when a hurricane comes through and takes out a city and floods the streets and everything, what does the, what does the news cover when that happens? Do they start taking pictures of things that the hurricane didn't hit? They start saying, guys, look, the, the hurricane damage, it's really not that bad. Look, here's a random park that we found that's completely untouched by it. So freaking what? It just amazes me the level of insane, the, the level of insanity they are willing to engage in and, and trying to paint this thing as though it's really not as bad as you're seeing it, the way that they are trying to protect the violent rioters. And another thing too, how does this help the guy whose business burned down? How does this help the local franchise owner of an auto zone or a Wendy's? How does this help that person? Do you think that it really helps them that they feel a lot better about themselves? It's like, well, I've lost everything I've worked for my entire life and my entire business is a pile of rubble now. Oh, but look, here's a picture of a random park that wasn't affected by the riots. How does that person think when he sees the media doing crap like this? I, I mean, look at what happened, for example, with Chaz. You think the people who had their businesses completely destroyed or were shut down for weeks on end and they couldn't make any money and they, you know, are struggling to make ends meet? Do you think that they feel a lot better by the fact that two or three blocks down the street there's a business that isn't closed? Doesn't help them. It just astounds me what the media is willing to do. And again, I have said this a thousand times. I don't like it when Donald Trump refers to the media as the enemy of the people. I don't think that it's helpful. I think that it automatically sets up an adversarial sort of relationship. And, and I've been somebody that's been bashing the media for years. Actually, well, probably not before Trump, because Trump has said a lot of crap about a lot of things way before he was in politics. But before Trump was at least in the political scene, 
I've been doing it since before that time because I'm, you know, been doing this for longer than three and a half years. Uh, but even then, I didn't think that it was the right approach. I don't like the tone. I don't like the, the sort of thing that it sets. But if you want to know why people can think of the media as the enemy of the people, it's because of junk like this. They're willing to bend over backwards and go completely out of their way to say to the average American that was hurt by this, screw you, we don't care about what happened to you, we're going to pretend like it didn't happen because that's what suits our political agenda. That's how you get people referring to you as enemy of the people. It's stuff like that right there. So this is a little bit later in that same article. The report also suggested disproportionate police response had escalated tensions and protests. They're really going this route, I know. In about 10% of Black Lives Matter protests, law enforcement intervened using force such as batons, rubber bullets, or pepper spray in about half those cases. Quote, these heavy-handed police response appears to have inflamed tensions and increased the risk of violent escalation, the report states according to the Post. The escalating use of police force against demonstrators comes amid a wider push to militarize the government's response to domestic unrest and particularly demonstrations perceived to be linked to left-wing groups like Antifa, which the administration views as a terrorist organization, it added. Well, first of all, it absolutely is a terrorist organization. Antifa is a terrorist organization. There's no bones about it. They are a group that tries to terrorize people to get a political change. That's a terrorist organization by anybody's definition. That is their goal. That is the method that they use. I don't know how else to say it. But that aside, since that was only sort of a minor note here, they're actually blaming the police. They're saying, okay, well, yeah, there's only 220 cases where this did happen, where there were violent riots that broke out. But guys, wait, hang on a second. Let's also remember that when that happened, that was the police's fault. The, the police went in and instead of de-escalating it, they actually wound up escalating it. So there's a couple reasons why this is such a massive pile of horse crap. First of all, yes, they're blaming the police for escalation, but think about this too. Where have the riots been the worst? Where have the riots been the worst? In Democrat-led cities, where the police have had their hands tied. Portland is a perfect example. Seattle is a perfect example, where the black female chief of police wound up quitting her job, they wound up forcing her out by cutting her salary because she didn't want to deal with it anymore. Because they had tied her hand, she said to the media multiple times, look, I didn't want to abandon the police precinct. That wasn't my call. That wasn't my decision. I wanted to stand our ground there, but the city, I, I was told by the mayor and other people in charge that I had to leave. So places where the police are told that they can't engage with the protesters are where the riots are the worst. Seems like an awful big coincidence if police escalation is the thing that's causing this. You've got to be outside your mind to believe this. First, I mean, that's the first thing. Just common sense tells you that the Chaz, where protesters took over a six-block radius of the city and the Portland, or sorry, Seattle, the Seattle Police Department was not allowed to engage in them or to stop them, that that can't be the cause of the police if the police aren't allowed to do anything. Same thing you're seeing in Portland, the same thing you're seeing in cities all across the country. But just beyond the common sense thing, 
you're also committing a pretty, pretty obvious logical fallacy known as a cause and effect fallacy to where you're ignoring the fact that what you're attributing to the cause and effect may actually be the reverse. So let's think about this. When it comes to the violent ones, in other words, you're talking about cases where police used batons and, and had to uh, rubber bullets and other crowd control kind of methods. Are police more likely to use those in peaceful riots or sorry, in peaceful protests or violent riots? Well, you would think that the police would be more likely to use them when things get violent. So you're ignoring the fact that what could have been the thing, the catalyst that caused the police to use these crowd controlling methods could be that the protest turned into a riot. You're completely ignoring that, thinking that maybe it was actually the people that are, oh, I don't know, burning down a freaking auto zone, that they might be the ones escalating the situation, not the cops. Now, do the cops behave perfectly in every single situation? No. Have there been times where police officers may have accidentally escalated it? I don't know, maybe. There's not really been any evidence of that, so I'm not going to buy into that unless I have a really good reason to. But in this article, and, and the way that The Hill tries to portray it, they're acting like the police are the reason that the ones that did turn violent were violent. But wouldn't it make more sense to assume that police reacted to the riots when they turned violent by using crowd control methods, and therefore they became one that, you know, oh, this one's a violent one. Oh, here's, it seems like in this one, they were using rubber bullets and tear gas and all of this stuff. Hmm, wonder if there's a connection to those two things. It's absolutely absurd, this, the case that they're trying to make here. But ultimately, what this comes down to, and the reason that the left and the media, again, I repeat myself, is making this play, is because they believe you, the American people, are mouth-breathing morons. That's the only explanation I can come up with to justify why they think that you have been watching this play out for a hundred days now. And you're not smart enough to go, huh, these Democrats and the media that have been telling me that this isn't a big deal, that the violence is justified, and that this isn't even happening. Jerry Nadler is saying that, no, 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 this is all a myth. It's a hoax. People are just making this stuff up. It's not really happening. Antifa's not even real. The same people that are now trying to backpedal on that and saying that the violence is bad and wrong and we need to come out strong against it, they think that you're a moron. Because only somebody that believes that you're a moron would believe that that would be a good play or an effective play that might convince you to not believe what you believed 10 minutes ago. They think you're that stupid. Because they would not try this if they believed that the American people were not idiots. Now, the American people are not perfect. They're easily distracted, and the vast majority of them are ill-informed. But they're not idiots. I just don't believe that they're going to wind up falling for this. Now, does it result in Joe Biden getting elected? I don't know, maybe. I don't think that that's really the best gauge for this. But I don't think that the American people are dumb enough to be duped into believing that the Democrats haven't been playing softball with the rioters for three months, even though they've been seeing that play out in real time. I don't think that that is going to be the case. And if you're somebody that is sympathetic to the message of the rioters and the protesters that are organizing peacefully as well, at a certain point, you do have to ask yourself, am I on the right side? 
And I mean that genuinely. Because there are times, even when it comes to conservative people or people on the right, I have to take a step back and ask myself, hmm, am I on the right side? Because that seems inconsistent with the things that I want to be associated with. Guys, if this isn't a wake-up call to you, American cities being burned down by people that are claiming to be the adherents to your political ideology, I don't know what to tell you. There's nothing else that's going to shake you awake after that. There's certainly nothing I can say that is going to change that. But the Dems are now caught in an impossible political situation. They are between the proverbial rock and a hard place on this because now they're stuck between the riots aren't bad in other words, they're justified and, and what they're doing are okay and, and we should just look the other way or uh, in some cases even embrace it like you know Bill de Blasio and some other people like that have. Or they're stuck between the other one, which is denounce the riots because now they've gone past the point, I think even they realize, they've gone past the point of pretending that they're not real. And so that's why you see Joe Biden coming out and making a denouncement of them but the thing is, the radical left really doesn't like either one of those. They want the riots to be really bad, and they want you to know that they're behind them. And so, the old guard progressives, in other words, the people that, they still want socialism, but they want to get there at a much slower pace so there's not the violent overthrow. The progressives, they know that that's political poison. And because they know that that's political poison, they don't want to be the ones to own this which is why they are now trying to reverse course and say that the riots are bad and they're against them and they shouldn't be supporting them. And, and they only did that five minutes after it started showing up in the polling data. But nonetheless, this is why you do not play footsie with radicals. Just because you think they might vote for you or just because you think that maybe we can get their support or maybe we can use them as useful idiots, it's not a winning strategy. I said exactly the same thing to Trump supporters in 2016 when they kind of wanted to wink and nod at the alt-right and pretend that, though, they weren't insane. No, they were just as insane as Antifa. But the left embraced Antifa while the vast majority of the right rejected the alt-right and didn't want anything to do with them. And because of this, the left now finds itself in a position where they, the, the radicals that they have let into their fold are making them look bad and could cause them to lose an election, but they also don't want to let go of them because if they lose them, then they turn on them. You see, now that they're inside the tent, they can do them a lot of harm from the inside. And this is why you do not play footsie with radicals. It does not end well for you. They will come after you. They always do. Robespierre was executed by his own people. That's how these violent revolutions work. But ultimately, the moral of this story, don't go to bed with anybody that you don't want to wake up next to. Because they just, the Democrats open themselves up to this. And now they're paying the price. Will they pay the political price? I really don't know. It seems, based on the polling, that they certainly are going to. I mean, they went from a assured victory to where Joe Biden would have beat Trump walking away. I mean, it's, it's a walk-off home run. And it's a no-doubter. It's way up there in the stands. That's the position Joe Biden was in just a month ago. And now he's fighting for his life in several key battleground states. Does that mean that he's going to lose the election? I don't know. 
but this is literally the only thing that I can think of that is going to even that playing field, and it actually wound up evening the playing field. So we'll see how it goes. I don't think that the people are going to be fooled by this, but we'll have to see how that we'll have to see how that pans out. Let's go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Now, our chaplain's report today actually comes from the book of Ezekiel. We are going to, for a brief period, just forego our series on 1 Samuel. I'll probably get right back to it on Thursday, but I was going through some personal Bible reading. I'm reading through the major prophets right now, and I went and I found Ezekiel, and I got to tell you, I just had to sort of have a stop the presses moment. I've got to do a chaplain's report on this because it's so timely, so relevant. I, I mean, it just blew my mind how these verses just relate so closely to what we've been talking about for the past several days. And this particular passage is Ezekiel talking about false prophets. So to set the stage a little bit, Ezekiel is one of the very few prophets of God that are left. And the vast majority of the people that are prophesying, that are talking to the kings and the princes and the rulers in Israel, they're false prophets. They claim to be of God, but they're not. They basically got into the position that they are by telling the people, uh, both in high places and the regular people, the, the regular Joe Schmo that's working and just trying to feed his family, they told all of those people the things that they wanted to hear. They basically scratched the itch that they needed to, to tell them about all this good news. And they've also been corrupt, taking bribes, all of these things. They are, they're kind of the Joel Osteen <laughs> of ancient Israel in that sense, that they're just saying things that will tickle the person's ears but aren't actually truth. And this is one of the big criticisms that we find in Ezekiel. We'll look at chapter 13, verses 22 through 23. Because you disheartened the righteous with falsehood, when I did not cause him grief, but have encouraged the wicked not to turn from his wicked way and preserve his life, therefore you women will no longer see false visions or practice my divination, and I will deliver my people out of your hand. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. So when we look at that verse, there are two really big condemnations by God. And the first one is disheartening the righteous with falsehood. So this one's pretty self-explanatory. It's just somebody that intentionally tries to dishearten uh, tries to take away the hope or the uh, the joy of somebody that is a good person. Somebody that attacks that which is good and tries to prevent them or tries to discourage them from doing that good. It's really not hard to see why these false prophets would have been engaging in this in the time of Ezekiel. Because if you're a false prophet, nothing makes you look like a false prophet more than an actual prophet. <laughs> And so, if that right message is out there that contradicts the message that you've been peddling to these people, you got to figure out a way to get rid of them, or to discredit them, or to do something. And this is what they are being told. This is why God is angry with them. Because what they have done 
is they have gone to the righteous people, the ones that are actually trying to do what God is telling them to do, and trying to silence them. Telling them, shut up, no, we don't want to hear you, you're not saying the right thing. They're trying to discourage these people from doing what God wants them to do. So it's not just that they're doing the wrong thing, they are trying to find other people that are trying to do the right thing and stop them from doing it. This is what God is angry about right there. And you'll notice at the end of that, he says, when I did not cause them grief. Remember that God chastises people. God chastises people all the time. And sometimes God allows even really horrible, terrible things to happen to people that he loves and wants the best for. I mean, essentially the entire book of Job is a case study in that. But here is an occasion where God is saying, you are attacking my people you are disheartening them and discouraging them at a time where I didn't want that to happen, at a time where I need them to be encouraged. And for this, you are going to pay a price. And then the second half of this, where he says that the other big gripe that God has with these people, the second part of this, is that you encourage the wicked. And he specifically mentions two different ways how they've encouraged the weak, wicked. First of all, he said that they have been encouraged to do evil, or sorry, to continue to do evil by not turning from their evil ways. So the, the way that the verse reads in verse 22, it says, you have encouraged the wicked not to turn from his wicked way. So in other words, here you are, on the one hand, all the people that are godly and righteous and trying to do what God tells them to do, you're trying to discourage them, you're trying to push them off to the side, saying, no, 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 no. You don't need to do that, and you know, you're going to face a penalty for this, and they're trying to dishearten those people, discourage them from doing the right thing, while simultaneously encouraging the wicked people, referring to them as good, saying, yes, do this, stirring them up, um, basically allowing them to do this wickedness, and not just allowing, actually encourage them to do the things that God doesn't want them to do. And then the second part of that is by preserving their life. Now, it's important to understand that this is contingent upon a biblical principle. Because these were judges and prophets. And because of that, what he says by preserving their life, he's saying, these people are doing wicked and you are not killing them. That's what God is angry about. That they are doing things that according to the law of Moses are worthy of death. And these perverse judges are encouraging them in their wickedness and not punishing them because of it. This is what God is angry about. That they are essentially trying to punish the good and reward the evil. That they are encouraging them to do this, and that they are neglecting their duty to speak out against it and to go one step further and punish those that are engaged in breaking God's law. Now, this isn't, you know talking about vigilante justice or anything. These are people that are in positions of power that are supposed to be orchestrating this kind of thing. This would be like the police officers punishing and chastising those who are not doing anything wrong and just completely leaving alone people that are supposed to face legal penalties because of what they're doing. This is something that's rooted all the way back in Genesis. Even before the law of Moses, all the way back in Genesis, God deems when Cain kills Abel, that if a man sheds blood, then his blood will be shed. That there is going to be a recompense for harming the innocent. And this is what they are not doing. 
I don't know if it's murder specifically or physical injury specifically that is being talked about in Ezekiel, although there are other passages in Ezekiel that actually do suggest that is what is going on. But the point is, there is evil that is being done, and they are refusing to carry that to its ultimate uh, punishment that God has ordained through the law of Moses that they should face. Does this not all sound like it was written today? The chastisement that is going on here by God is saying that the way that your society in Israel is working now, the way that your justice system and those that are charged with keeping my laws are operating is that they are punishing those that are trying to do the right thing and trying to preserve the life and not punishing those that are doing evil. I mean, you need only go back to, you don't even have to go that far back into the past. Remember that just a couple months ago, we were having government officials that were shutting down churches, finding them imprisoning their ministers and their church leaders for daring to have a worship service when the state said, no, you can't do that. And then those same localities, those same jurisdictions are looking at people burning down buildings and killing people in some cases and just not prosecuting, not doing anything telling the police to back off. I mean, if, if this couple of verses is not a microcosm of where America is right now, I don't know what it is. And that scares the mess out of me because you know what actually happens to Israel when they continued in this behavior? God punished them as a nation, as a whole. The retribution was swift and it was terrible. And I'm genuinely scared for my country. I reflect the sentiment of Thomas Jefferson when he said, I tremble for my country when I remember that God is just and his justice will not sleep forever. We are seeing this play out in the streets of this country every single day and have for over a hundred days now. And I'm getting more scared because I remember that God's justice does not sleep for very long. It may take it a few years, it may not be as swift as we would like it, but it does come, and it comes with a vengeance when it does. But the thing that I think really struck me more than anything is that it also reminds me of the passages in Isaiah, where Isaiah warns his people of calling good evil and evil good. And we've been doing that for a while now. We're calling two, uh, two men or two women getting together and, and making a mockery out of the God-ordained institution of marriage. We're saying that that is good. We're saying a four-year-old that is a boy that thinks he's a girl and his parents encouraging him to have surgery that will maim his body for the rest of his life. We're calling that good. And we're calling a 35-year-old man being able to enter a bathroom filled with little girls. We're calling that good. We're trying to, in some circles, even justify pedophilia and calling that good. We're referring to the destruction of the nuclear family and Western civilization. We're calling that good. But we're calling meeting together and worshiping and singing praises to God. That's bad. We can't have that. We have to punish people for doing that. Guys, it feels like we're living in biblical times. And I'm genuinely worried about it. But here's the reason that for all my worry, for all seeing the, the signs on the wall and, and hoping that that's not what comes to pass, here's the reason 
why even though I am genuinely concerned about it, I know that ultimately it's not going to be the end of the world. It's not going to be the end of the church. It's not going to be that we don't win this eventually because of the end of that verse. Because what do you see at the end of verse 23? He says that I will deliver my people out of your hand. That's it. No commentary. Not God telling us how he's going to do it or the way that he's going to do it. Just, I will deliver my people out of your hand. Those that are righteous, those that are good, those that are following me, those I will protect and I will deliver them out of your hand to where you can't hurt them anymore. Now, whether he does it on this side of eternity or the next, I don't know. But I have absolute 100% confidence that for those that are following God, they will be delivered out of the hands of those that are chastising them. They will be delivered out of the hands of these false prophets that are pretending to be on the side of the angels while promoting something that is demonic. I know that for a fact as sure as I am sitting here. And the very last part of that verse, right after God makes that promise, thus you will know that I am the Lord. Even the people that are doing this, even the people that are calling light dark and dark light, the people that are promoting these kinds of things, those people eventually will know that God is God. They're not going to like it. They're not going to be happy about it. They're going to have to admit that they were wrong, but they are going to know that God is God. That is going to happen regardless of what they think about it. So when God does this deliverance, when he protects them, and those that are called by his name, his people, those that are in his kingdom, are delivered out of this tribulation, even the bad guys are going to know that God is real and that he is the Lord. And regardless of all the craziness and, and the insanity and the immorality that is going on around us, we can rest assured in that, and that is the antidote to any worry or anxiety we're feeling about it. Yes, the world is insane right now, and there are very, very bad people trying to do very, very bad things, and they're specifically targeting us, targeting God's people, and rewarding those that are evil and encouraging them to do so. Yes, all of that is happening. God still reigns. And ultimately, that is the only thing that is going to matter, that he is the Lord. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.